0: Longer than I thought. Well, here we are, um, and and you may think, well, we're finally to the end of the book of Job, and we are to the end of the book of Job. But we're gonna—I don't want to say—drag this out. But we're gonna go three more weeks after today. So if if I don't cover something in these last few chapters, which man, I told everybody last week, I'm banking those twenty minutes that we got out early last week and applying them forward to today. So um, just fair warning. Uh, After 37 chapters of debating and discussing and raising voices and angry responses, God speaks. God speaks. We see him speak, and man, oh man. For those of you who are just joining us, maybe you don't know much about the book of Job. At the very beginning of this book, we get a glimpse behind the supernatural curtain of God into the throne room of God, and and, uh, angels and and the, and the devil, Satan, comes into God's throne room and God has this conversation with him and, and Satan basically says, you know, Job is only faithful to you because of all the stuff that you give him, all the blessings that you give him, all the protection that you give him. And God says, well, you know what? <laughs> to prove to you that that's not the case, you can, you, can, you can do everything that you would like to against Job, but don't touch his life. And so uh, Satan attacks Job's family, and he kills all of his children, and he uh, kills all of his livestock are destroyed. He kills all but four of his, his servants. And then there's another conversation, and, and, and Job says, well, it's because you have this hedge of protection around his health. That's the only reason why. And he, he, he's basically accusing God of bribing Job or people. And God says, you know what, to, to show you that that's not the case, you can, um, you can do whatever you want to Job, you just can't kill him. And then we see what that does in Job's life. He ends up in, in the, the city dump in, in ashes and, and he's, he has these three friends that visit from afar and they, they, they come to visit him and, and they don't even recognize him. He is in such a bad state. And for seven days, these friends sit silent with Job. They're just there. They don't know what to say. There really isn't much they can say, and they're just there. But then for some reason, these friends decide that they need to figure out why this happened to Job. They need to diagnose his situation so they can tell him what he needs to do to fix it. And, and they decide that he has, must have some great sin in his life and that if he would just repent of that before God, that God would then turn his um, you know, power away from Job and, and he would be healed and, and things would go well for him again. And Job's like, but I am a righteous man. In fact, um, we are told at the beginning of this, of the book of Job in chapter one by God himself, that Job was a righteous man. Before God, he was righteous. And there's been this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then Elihu, some other kid that, that, that's watching all of this go on, he pipes up and we, we covered what, what he said last week. And then finally, all of his friends are done and Job's like done and he's been crying out for justice and, and mercy. And, and, and he's actually, after all of this, I mean, his wife told him, curse God and die early on in this whole situation. Yet he didn't. He remained faithful to God, that God is in control, but now he wasn't happy about it. He, he got to complaining and he got to feeling like, jo- like, like God wasn't giving him justice. Now, as I've said all along, a question that we all should ask ourselves often is, is there some kind of sin in my life? I mean, that should be a, a daily thing because we are all imperfect in this world. And it's easy for us to develop blind spots in our life where, where there's sin or there's a bad attitude or there's something that we're harboring in our life or that we're comfortable with that we're not seeing and that somebody else, a friend, might see. And a friend might be able to say, hey, there's, there's something in your life that you need to think about. Um, Our selfishness, our self centeredness can really get in the way of this. Psalm 139, 23, and 24. We can pray this every day Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. God, help me see what you want me to repent of and what you want me to ask of you. And I want to add to this suffering is hard. Suffering is hard. Um, We we will all go through things that will test our faith. That will test how much we trust God. Painful things, brokenness, loneliness, separation, tragedy and death, experiences from either our own personal decisions or the decisions of others. It's hard and, and I'm not minimizing the chaos and pain in your world but what we will see today is that God is greater than anything that could ever happen in your life or in mine. Our creator God, a savior God, who walks with us during those times, if we would just look to him, if we would just look to him, He sustains us. His grace is sufficient for us. No matter what it is we are experiencing, we just need to trust him and lean on him. Paul, one of the greatest apostles to ever walk the planet, was given a thorn in the flesh. And God's response to him was, my grace is sufficient for you. Basically, Paul, I don't want you to get a big head. So there is this thing in your life that's gonna make sure that you Remain humble before me, and, and some of us need that more than others for sure. Turn, if you would, to Job chapter 38, if you brought your Bible with you or you have your phone. Um, if you have neither, there's a Bible under the seats in the, in the chairs there, um, and we're going to see four truths as we hear God finally speak today. And the first one is this, God is all-powerful and wise, God is all-powerful and wise. Now, I want you to think back to when you were in high school or grade school. For some of you, that was a really long time, I know. Um, For me, uh, when I think back to grade school and high school and I think of authorities that were in my school, Mr. Weller comes to mind. And Mr. Weller was the superintendent. Now, that was back when we had, you know, principals and superintendents. We weren't consolidated schools. It was a single school. And, and, And for some of you homeschool kids in the room, it's your parents, right? It's your mom or your dad. They're your principal. They're your superintendent. Now, uh, Mr. Weller was a scary man to me. I mean, I was in elementary school when he was there. And, and I didn't know anything about him. I just knew he was the superintendent and, and I should be scared of him because he was the authority over all of us in, in the school. Um, I feared him, actually. I mean... To the point of avoiding him in the halls. Do you have an authority? Did you have an authority in your school like that? Um, I mean, an authority that you avoided, an authority that you actually ended up obeying and listening to their commands because of that authority that they had over you? Why? Why did we submit to, why did I Try to toe the line in front of Mr. Weller. I can remember him, man. When there were basketball games, I mean, my brothers are playing basketball. Parents are in the gym. I'm out in the hall. I'm running up and down the hallways, right? I mean, that's what I was. That's my job as a kid. And sometimes they would leave that gate, in, you know, in the middle of the hallway that kept you from going into to the rest of the school unlocked. And we would sneak around it, and we would run back into the dark part of the school, and we'd be carrying on and. And and then you know all of a sudden there's Mr. Weller, and and I don't know if I ever wet my pants, but um. now isn't there? There's there's something about authority, right? The the decisions that those authorities make can impact our life for the rest of our life, whether they they uh, give us a second chance to pass a class, or or whether they. Uh, they forgive us and they're gracious when we do dumb things. Uh, power. And you know, our God is, is very, very powerful. And, and whenever I think of God's power, I always think of the, the book C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe from the Chronicles of Narnia, and Lucy is talking to Mrs. Beaver, and they're talking about Aslan, who's this, this great lion in the land, who is the God figure in the Chronicles of Narnia, and, and, and they're talking about going and meeting him, and Lucy looks to Mrs. Beaver and says, is he safe? And, and, and Mrs. Beaver says, oh dear, no, he's not safe, but he's good. You know our God is is powerful. He is great. Is He safe? Heavens, no. But He's good. He's good. Now we would prefer that God speaks to us through sunshine and flowers. But sometimes He must speak to us through the storm. And, and Elihu, as he was speaking, he was speaking of, of God in reference to a storm. And I think God was, was producing this storm. He was in this storm in the distance as Elihu is talking to Job about the power of God. And then finally, when Elihu ends, God speaks. And how does it say he speaks in verse 1? In the storm. In the storm, we See, when we see and or experience the power of God, we become susceptible to his message, and that's right where we need to be. I need to be susceptible to his message. When he speaks, man, we should listen. Does that remind you of a commercial? It reminded me of this one. You'll never regret the purchase of a good stock, you don't know say, Yeah, my broker says it's a real good buy. What does your broker say? Well, my broker's EF Hutton. And Hutton says... When EF Hutton talks, people People listen. listen. Now, that was in the 70s. I was like five. Between five and ten years old when that commercial was on. And and when I I read, when I wrote, When God Speaks People (sighs) Listen, that came to my mind. And that's what we need to do. When God speaks, man, we need to shut up. And we need to listen. Dr. Paul Tournier, a Swiss psychologist, wrote a book titled Guilt and Grace. And he says this, for God's answer is not an idea, a proposition, like the conclusion of a theorem. It is himself. He revealed himself to Job, Job found personal contact with God. Job pleaded for God to speak. He pleaded for God to bring him justice. He pleaded for, uh, for him to answer his questions, and Job found personal contact with God. God spoke. But if you read these last chapters over the course of the last two weeks, what is it that you didn't find in reading God speaking to Job? God didn't answer his questions. Did he? (laughs) He didn't answer his actual questions. And as it turns out, he didn't need to because he revealed himself to Job. Um, Look at Job 38, starting in verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm and he said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall... Shall answer me, that is the moment where I would wet my pants. What have I done? What have I asked for? Where were you, God says, when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know who stretched a measuring line across it. On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstones? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness. When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place. When I said, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. Verse 18 Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me, if you know all this, what is the way to the abode of light and where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Surely, surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. I don't know, is God being sarcastic there? Verse 31, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Can you loosen Orion's belt? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you? Here we are. Who gives the ibis wisdom or gives the rooster understanding? Who has the wisdom to count the clouds? Who can tip over the water jars of the heavens when the dust becomes hard and the clods of earth stick together? Do you hunt the prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in a thicket? Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and and wander about for lack of food? A little over a week ago, I was in our camper over at Guernsey Lake. And uh, with Hayden and the youth group doing church last Sunday, I was able to get away and spend some time praying and listening and, and reading and planning for the upcoming fall series that we have coming up. And, and Thursday night, some of you may have experienced this Thursday night, early Friday morning. It was 2.30 in the morning when I was aware of the first loud crack and boom. There was a thunder and lightning storm that I have like I have never seen before. And, and maybe it was just the place I was in a camper next to a, well, it was a stream, not a lake then yet again. Um, and, and as I sat there in the bed and I raised the shades and I looked out and I could see the flash and I could hear the, the deafening boom almost immediately after the flash and it rolling through. The canyons. My first thought was, "God, is that you? Is that you?" Because you see, I was reading through these last four chapters uh, of of uh, of Job. I mean, it was amazing and frightening all at the same time. I was talking to a few folks the next morning out there at the the campsite, and they were like, "We were we were scared." And I mean, maybe I'm too dumb to be scared, but I I mean. I didn't think it was going to strike my camper. But the sheer, the sheer volume of the thunder, it just shook you to the core. It, make, it, it, it makes me think about God on that mountain when Moses went up and God told the people, don't even come close to the mountain, else you will die. His power. Is he safe? No. Is he good? Yes. Yes. What power, what an experience. Now, Thursday night before I went to bed, I was sitting there in my chair, it was dark, it was about 10.23 and I see this light. And this light's coming and it's not flashing, so I know it's not uh, an airplane and, and it's pretty bright, so I know it's not a distant satellite and it goes across the horizon and then it kind of disappears behind some clouds that were, um, so I know it wasn't a helicopter or some military thing. So I, grabbed my phone and I Googled the ISS and, and found that it was the International Space Station. It comes over two or three times a night, actually. Um, And, and it was the time that it was supposed to come across. And I thought, man, we have a space station. Men and women live on this thing in space. We have built it in space. Oh, great for us, right? Wow, we're so powerful. Yeah, that's nothing compared to the works and creation of God. Our planet, our solar system, which, which turns out to be but a tiny, tiny little, our solar system is but a tiny, tiny little cul-de-sac in the universe. And, and I know I've tried before and, and there are other people, if you, if you read the, the article that I wrote last month in the newsletter and you actually went and you listened to uh, some of, of the, or you watched the videos that, uh, shoot, I'll remember his name in a little bit, but, um, or maybe I won't. <laughs> anyway, um, He's done a couple tours through the United States. He's a pastor. Um, And uh, the song that we did last week, Indescribable. Um, That was their first tour a few years ago. Louis Louis Giglio, thank you. And uh, he talks about how, I mean, I think he's kind of a a science geek, actually. a, 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 A universe geek. And, and I kind of geek out when I, when I look at some of the stuff that he did. Um, you know, our sun uh, and, of course, the biggest star that we have ever captured in pictures f- so far. And, and this was new to me. I didn't realize. You can actually see it with your naked eye. Uh, and And in 1990, we launched the Hubble telescope. And we were able to look deeper into space than we have ever been able to look before. And, of course, the people that are making these things are like... We're trying to figure out the origins of the universe, like looking deeper into space will do that. I'm like, I can, I can show you right here. You don't need to spend all that money, but um, <laughs> Hubble, Hubble telescope orbits the earth at 332 miles away. Okay, and it, it orbits the earth and it has given us incredible views. There was one time they, they, they pointed Hubble space telescope at this dark area for, for hours so that it could capture the light that was coming. in this first picture that you're gonna see, that's what Hubble Space Telescope showed. And, And I mean, I don't know that you could even count the number of stars, the number of galaxies, the number of, seriously, the number of galaxies that are out there. I mean, who would have known that our universe was so incredibly, incredibly big? And God spoke it all into existence. He spoke it into existence. And now we have new technology. I didn't know this until I started researching this. It's called the James Webb Telescope and it was launched on December 25th in 2021. And so far has performed above and beyond expectations. It is supposed to be able to to work with the fuel it has on board for 20 years. They'll be able to look deeper into space. John Ehrenberg, chief mission architect of Northrop Grumman, who built this uh, telescope, says the discoveries astronomers and scientists have made so far with Webb are raising newer and bigger questions about the universe. I love that thought. With new questions come new ideas, and Webb will inform the next generation of advanced science missions. In other words, if you think the Bible is wrong or you think something it, it speaks differently about something, like it mentions something archeologically, but we have never found that, give them time. They will find it. So here's how the James Webb views the deep field compared to Hubble. Okay, that was James Webb. This is James Webb's view, this is Hubble's. And then there's one more where it's just James Webb, right, Roy? That's the deep field. Now, I, I didn't look up how far away it is or how far they think away it is, it's, it's a long ways. I mean, it's, and how does all that work? With light, traveling, speed of light, all of that? I mean, that sort of science stuff just, it, it just blows me. Away. Um, The James Webb telescope is not in orbit around the Earth, however. Um, James Webb actually orbits the sun, which is what we're doing, the planet Earth. Uh, James Webb is a million miles away from the Earth at what is called the second Lagrange point. So it's sun, 93 million miles, Earth, then there's the moon, and then another 940 million miles to James Webb. I mean, isn't our God great? I love seeing stuff like that. I love taking the time to see stuff like that. We could do that every day in nature. We're getting ready to go up to uh, the snowy range, the most beautiful place on earth in my opinion. And, uh, you know, if we take some time, to sit and, and look at what God has made. And um, Job 38, 31, and 32, I already read these, but God says, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Can you loosen Orion's belt? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? God's talking about um, star formations. And, and he mentions Orion's belt. And, and Betelgeuse is a red supergiant star and one of the largest visible to the naked eye. We can look up from here and see Betelgeuse. Now, it won't look quite like this, but that's a picture that we have from James Webb of, of Betelgeuse. Um, It's the brightest star in the night sky, and after Regal, it's the second brightest in the constellation of Orion. I'm sorry, it's the tenth brightest star in the sky. That just wasn't working. It's the tenth brightest star in the sky, and it's the second brightest next to Regal in the constellation of Orion. Now, if the Earth, just for a little perspective, if, if the Earth were a golf ball, Okay, to, to give us a little bit of scale here, if the earth were a golf ball, our sun, our sun would be 15 feet in diameter. Okay, so our sun is, is big. It takes eight minutes for the heat from the sun to get to us. Is that right? Or is it eight seconds? It's eight something. Like I said, I've been sort of geeking out over this stuff this week. So if, if the earth were a golf ball, Betelgeuse would be the diameter of six empire state buildings stacked on top of each other. That's how big that star is. And God spoke it into existence. Among all the other galaxies and everything else. Uh, A couple other cool cool facts that I found. You could fit 262 trillion Earths inside Betelgeuse. Betelgeuse is twice the size of the Earth's orbit around the sun. I mean, I don't know. Once once you get past a light year, it's kind of hard to tell... You know, we, we just don't have, it, it's hard for us. Um, here's another picture from the James Webb Telescope. That, that's, okay, that's an actual picture from the James Webb Telescope. That Roe Ophiuchi complex, which is the closest star-forming region to Earth. And it's only 390 light years away. So, traveling the speed of light, it would only take you 390 years to get to that. And it's the closest star-forming complex that we have. I mean, that, that, I just, it just puts me in awe. It puts me in awe at the vastness of God's creation and order and organization of it all. He, he spoke it into existence, and he is present in all of it. He is all-present um, God speaks very clearly to Job and to us that he is great and wise. Number two, God is also personal and loving. Now the text shows us that God is personal and loving. In Job chapter 1, verse 1, we read that Job is a man who feared God and shunned evil. Job 1.1. One, one. The Hebrew word translated God in that verse is Yahweh which is his covenantal name. It is the name that he gave to Moses at the burning bush when Moses said, who should I tell him sent me? Why, why would they believe me when, when I go to tell the Israelites that you're going to let them go? And in Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Yahweh, I am. His presence. God himself. But after chapter 1, in the next 37 chapters, God is referred to by by Job, by Job's friends, by Elihu as El Shaddai, which means God the Almighty, which is significant because Job and his friends when they speak of God, they're talking about a God who is sort of out there. He's he's distant from us. He's just powerful. He's not intimate and close. And in true comparison, we are absolutely and totally insignificant in comparison to God, aren't we? Louis Giglio says we, he says, we are insignificantly significant. (laughs) Because God knows each and every one of us in here. Yet he spoke the universe into existence. When God speaks to Job out of the storm, he then returns again to the name Yahweh. God is coming near and he's acting out of a personal connection to Job individually and to humanity as a whole. God's personal covenantal name reveals his personal relational connection to and care for Job and for us, when, when Jesus described himself to people when he was present on the earth, what did he say? Who did he say he was? In John chapter 8, 58, it's recorded right there. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Can you get any more personal than that? I mean, any more personal than an all-powerful creator in whom we live and move and have our being that gives up his place in the heavenlies and confines himself to a human form in order to not only relate to us and be with us and experience what we experience so, so that he totally can do all of that, but to also go through the pain and agony that he went through when he was crucified and buried when he sacrificed for you and for me that our sins might be forgiven and that we might be reconciled with an all-powerful, perfect God so that one day when we take our last breath on this planet, we will have eternal life. Jesus in John 14, 6 said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Those aren't my words, those aren't the church's words, those are the words of Jesus. Jesus himself said, I am the only way, I'm it. And and he showed time and time again that he was in fact God, that he was in fact, that he did in fact have power over everything. Salvation, restoration to a relationship with God, eternal life can be found in no one else, only Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us, and he is so personal and loving to Job before Jesus came as his advocate and now for all of us after. 48 prophecies from hundreds and hundreds of years earlier that Jesus fulfilled, as Hayden explained so well to us last week. God is great and wise and God is personal and loving. And a, and a third truth that I'm reminded of in these last closing chapters of Job is that I am not God. We are not God. And I think we all needed reminded of this often. At least I do. Um, I, I often get into the mindset that I'm in charge of my life. I make all the decisions for my life. I provide everything for my family. I do all the work. I get all of that. Well, You know what? That's not true. We trudge on forward without seeking God's direction and wisdom. And when things don't go the way that we want them to or that I want, want them to, then I, then I get a bad attitude or I blame God for, for this position that I am in. Job 40 verses 1 through 8. Flip over to Job chapter 40. The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Now, Job does humble himself again before the Lord and repent of his bad attitude and he worships the Lord in verses three through eight. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy, how can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once but I have no answer. Twice but I will say no more. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? My life in God's hands, your life in God's hands is in a much better place than only in your own. He is all powerful and all present and all knowing. I am not. So Friday out at the lake, if I could return there, I was praying and listening and reading through this chapter and I see a butterfly. I don't normally... See big ones. I mean, it was a big orange and black one. I don't, I, I don't know if it was a monarch. I don't know if we have those here. But it was, it was a big butterfly. And, and, I, and as I was sitting here and I was watching it, I thought for sure it was going to fly up and land on me. I was actually kind of hoping it would. It didn't. It landed in the grass, but it sat there for a bit. And I looked at it. And, you know, I, I, of course I couldn't see this there, but you know, butterflies have that little like loopy tongue that they unfold and curl back in and what an what a intricate creature and a butterfly flies how does it how on earth does it fly with with those big wide things that that they flap really fast exactly and then, and, then, and then I thought about the birds and, and there were robins that would come in and, and, and I could hear kingfishers in the trees and I could hear a killdeer. And, and I just thought, here are two animals that are totally unique of each other. They both fly, but they're, but they're all creatively different and unique and amazing. and And then, and then God continues... Well, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and then I hear dogs barking occasionally. Occasionally that weekend, 4th of July weekend, they didn't stop barking. There were dogs barking all, all the time. But, um, and, and then my mind turns to God's description of the Leviathan and the behemoth in chapter 40. God continues to use his creation as an illustration of how powerful he is. I mean, it's the... Is there a better illustration I mean, describe the universe and give three examples. God is telling Job how great he is. Now, we don't really know what animals God was referring to as he talks about the behemoth and the Leviathan. Oh, he, he, he gets pretty descriptive. Some think that the behemoth is a hippopotamus and, and, that, and that actually fits. I, I watched a hippopotamus take after some lions that were trying to get him the other day and, and they were no match. They weren't getting there. But but then he describes, um, God describes his tail as being like a sycamore tree or a big tree. And I'm thinking a hippopotamus just has that little flinky thing back there and it's just really tiny. So then it takes me to a brontosaurus and, and I'm thinking, well, maybe that was behemoth because it would have, and it would be an animal big enough that God would have created that would not be able to be Controlled by, by mankind, especially in Job's day. And, and then he talks about the Leviathan. And what I uh, commentators and a lot of people think that the, well, the Leviathan was a, a, some kind of swimming animal with defenses that couldn't be penetrated. And, and most think it's like a crocodile, um, maybe a whale sized crocodile. I, I don't know. Um, I, and then there are other descriptors, and of course, Some of it is poetic language, and and it, it makes me think that it was a dragon. I mean, I'd like to think that dragons were real sometime. Maybe they went away with the dinosaurs. I don't know. Maybe somebody will uncover a dragon. Anyway. I mean, and those things still pale in comparison to God. The biggest things, the biggest animals that we can think of that God was trying to help Job understand um, still pale. Think of the intricacies of plants and trees and vegetation on our planet, The, the, the balance of our ecosystems. I mean, we produce carbon dioxide when we breathe, right? Lo and behold, there's plants out there that actually breathe in the carbon dioxide and give off oxygen. Think of your own body. Think of the small, clear down to the smallest cells. How can anyone believe that everything on this planet, with its perfect distance from the sun, just happened to come from a single-cell organism that came out of the water? Where did the water come from? Where did the planet come from? Oh, it was the Big Bang. Okay, Out of what, nothing? Well, I can tell you, it probably was a Big Bang. But that happened when God spoke. I'm just not sure how one can come to the conclusion that this this just given enough years would evolve. There's just too much design. There's too much order. God gave all things their order and design. He's explaining it to Job. Did you mark? Did you measure out the distances, he says to Job? Because God did all of that. Job repeats his new attitude and submission to God in 42 verses one through six. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? This is Job's response. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes until we are silenced before God. He can't do for us what needs to be done. Until we are silent before God. No, we are not God. And and when we realize this our attitude and posture should be this be similar to Job's right here. We're the disciples, where else would we turn, Jesus? You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And after Job has learned what God wanted him to, God returns everything back to Job, and then some. Job is commanded to go to his friends and pray for them. God has a conversation with his friends who are there also, and we're going to talk about those, the rest of that in the next couple weeks God is great and wise. God is personal and loving. We are not God. And finally, God himself is the answer to the question of suffering. God himself is the answer to the question of suffering. Why does suffering exist in the world? This is the critical question at the heart of Job's story. It's why we have the book of Job. Because suffering is real in our world. And we ask those questions every day. Why? Why? And as we have seen, the answer to that question, why does suffering exist in the world, is never answered in the book of Job, not even by God. Throughout Job, we have been shown sources for suffering. Sometimes we experience tragedy because of attacks of Satan. Sometimes we suffer because we are being punished for our sin. Sometimes we suffer because God wants to get our attention or because we're affected by the sinful choices of other people. The truth is there is no universal cause for suffering. But there is a universal response to suffering. And that response is to trust God. Job's story reveals that suffering and tragedy are real, yet they do not exist in a vacuum. We live in a universe, a universe created by a sovereign, wise, all-powerful God, and we are drawn to that God because he loves us and graciously brings us into relationship with him. In Jesus Christ, he reached into our world, so no matter what we are experiencing in this life we can leave the question of the why in his hands and simply trust that he is in control now I know that's easier said than done but that is a part of the journey that we're on with our Savior Jesus Christ John 16 Jesus said I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace in this world you will have trouble Jesus didn't Promise bowls of cherries. He said, you're going to have trouble. But he reassures us with that, that, the fact that he has overcome the world. And why would we not anchor our life to the one who has conquered it all? The one who created it all? The one who was there when the earth was formed? The one who knew you? Before the earth was formed. So, are you in the midst of suffering in your life today? Cry out to Jesus. Surrender your life and your situation to Him. Rest your burdens on Him. Tell Him. Pray. Praise Him for His greatness. View view the power of His creation. Repent to Him. As He brings things into your mind that aren't right and that He wants out of your life, ask Him to help you. And then when He communicates things to you, yield to Him. Obey Him. Follow Him. He will comfort you and carry you through. In 2 Corinthians 1, 3-5, It says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. Our comfort in suffering comes through our relationship with Jesus. And that relationship starts when we follow him, when we respond to him calling our name. And if you're here today and you have never trusted Jesus Christ as your savior and you can feel him calling your name, you can, maybe it's not audibly, but you hear something you've never heard before, believe. Because he is the real deal. He walked this earth. We have written evidence of that. History shows it. There were witnesses, hundreds of witnesses that saw Jesus alive and that saw him ascend back into heaven. Trust him, surrender to him. Romans 10, 9 and 10 explains how. It says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. And that's why we have this communion before us today. Jesus said to the disciples, he said, I want you guys to do this in remembrance of me. I want you to remember me. See, you're going to tend to forget. You're going to tend to get busy in your life and you're going to forget that I sacrificed my life for you, that my body was broken for you. Jesus said that this, this bread, as he sat with the disciples, he said this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. And I want you to remember that when you eat of it. And as we eat of it, we we acknowledge that we do believe and we acknowledge that, that, that he is our Lord and Savior and that his broken body was for me. It was on my behalf. It was because of the sin that I have in my life that needs to be forgiven. He was broken. And the cup, he took the cup and he said, This is my blood. This represents the blood that I'm going to shed for you. And we know from history and what we read in the Bible that he shed all of it. He was dead on that cross. They took him down. They put him in a tomb. He was in there for three days. And then he wasn't. They went and they found an empty tomb. And then Jesus began appearing to people. And we're told that we're to do this often so that we don't forget, that we might remember. You don't have to be a member of North Hills to participate in communion. Just a follower of Christ. And before we partake, since we've been talking about stars and solar systems, Apollo 11 landed on the surface of the moon on Sunday, July 20th, 1969. I remember it well. Okay, I was two. I don't remember it. Most of us are familiar with astronaut Neil Armstrong's historic statement as he stepped out onto the moon's surface. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, but few know about the first meal that was eaten on the moon. You see, Buzz Aldrin had brought aboard the spacecraft a tiny communion kit that was provided to him by his church. Aldrin sent a radio broadcast to Earth asking listeners to contemplate the events of that day and to give thanks. Then in radio blackout for privacy, Aldrin read, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. And silently he gave thanks and he partook. So this morning, as you come forward, and, and, and you could so if there's anybody in the room that, that isn't going to participate, it's okay, because people are just going to come forward. Come forward when you're ready. Um, I have two videos that, that I'm going to play that have some amazing words. So as you as you think about your remembrance and your celebration of, of Jesus, your Savior, whose body was broken, whose blood was shed, and who rose again. Consider the words of these couple songs that we're going to also listen to as we close. Let me, let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for giving your life. Thank you, for, thank you for caring for us. Thank you for loving us. Jesus, we we worship you this morning. We we give you praise and we thank you for the sacrifice that you made on our behalf. Help us. Help us to to be in, in your presence this week. We can still ask our questions and we can still bring things before you and we should do that. But help us to come with the right attitude and humbly knowing that you are so much greater than we could ever ask or imagine. In Jesus' name, amen.